Hi, welcome to the Tusnua pop-up meeting with our speaker, Beth H. And with that, I'll turn it over to Beth to uh, speak for a while, take a few questions, and we'll go from there. Thank you. Hi, I'm Beth, and I'm an alcoholic. Wow, it is great to see so, someone started a meeting based on my book, and several of the people that go to the meeting are here today, and it's just great to see you guys you're my support i lean on you guys just the same as you <laughs> lean on me maybe you didn't know that uh well in a, my my point that i'm gonna end up at in case i get too roundabout about it <laughs> is um the aa that i came into was not is not trauma informed. And unbeknownst to me until I got sober, I had undergone significant childhood trauma. But the thing is I internalized all of it. I never thought there was a thing wrong with my parents. I thought it was all me because that's what they told me. <laughs> and I bought into it because I was a kid and what else could I do? Um, so I grew up with extremely low self-esteem. And when I got to treatment, they told me I have a shame-based personality. And if you don't know what that means, one of the things is that I have a trauma response um, when something triggers me. And this doesn't happen near like it used to because I've been sober and working on this stuff for a long time, but some little trigger and I will immediately go into a oversized shame response like this feeling in the pit of my stomach, my face turns red, I hang my head, I wish I could disappear into the floor or run out of the room, but I don't want to run out of the room because that would attract too much attention. And, and I just, I, I feel like I just know that I, Either it reminds me what a terrible person I am, or I feel like I was just outed. To every, I thought I had been hiding that from everyone, but somebody just outed me and exposed me for the fraud that I am when I'm trying to act like I'm a normal person. And when I got to AA, so, so a lot of my um, stuff that happened as a kid was, my, I think my parents were both narcissists Neither one of them ever apologized for a thing. Nothing was ever their fault. So they, they, and they had their own traumas. You know, I'm not saying they were terrible people who deliberately set out to screw me up. I'm not saying anything like that. But they had not dealt with their own baggage and they were still fighting to keep it at bay. So what they did was projected onto their kids. Um, and then I got to reading about complex PTSD, which is like there are, I mean, soldiers have PTSD, like from being in a war, or you can have PTSD from being raped or witnessing a violent crime or, or being a victim of a violent crime. Uh, and, you know, those are like big episodes, but complex PTSD is, is more like the water torture kind. It's just like every day, little slights, little insults, little jabs, 
little ways of letting you know that you're less than and don't you dare stand up to me. And, and, and that, is, that is what I have. So I, I learned about there's different, res people respond to trauma in different ways. Some of it is based on, as a kid, you know, what kind of response can they get away with? <laughs> and and uh, some of it may be genetic. I, that wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. But Bill underwent significant, Bill W., he underwent significant childhood trauma also. And he had a different response than me. His response was going. You're kind of freezing up on us. Uh, maybe you can turn your camera oh. off. All right. Um, Anyhow, so that's the narcissism response. And we here in the United States have been privy to witnessing a major narcissist never be wrong or admit anything. <laughs> um, you know, so we, so we know what that's like. But underneath, we know that that is a really a hurt little boy. And, and I, same, same with Bill. Um, but that wasn't my response. And I recently listened to a thing about um, how people res well, respond to threats. And it said that all those fight and flight studies were mostly done on men. And that it's more common for, the more common response for women is called tend and befriend. Because if somebody bigger than me I'm, I'm not, I can't fight them. I can't, I can't outrun them. And it's best to play nice. They were saying like, so when you're being raped, how come you didn't yell? How come you didn't fight back? And because I would really get hurt if I did, right? I would get hurt more. Well, that's kind of like what, what it was like in my family. Like I learned to placate and appease the big people to keep myself safe and try not to draw attention to myself always be vigilant looking out what kind of mood is mom in what kind of mood is dad in because whatever it is it's going to get taken out on the kids you know like if my dad has a bad day at work you're sitting at home doing the same thing you were doing the last three days where he didn't say anything and all of a sudden it's terrible <laughs> or um my mom she grew up in an alcoholic home and i so, so what I'm getting to there, are, I had the tend and befriend response to my trauma. Bill had the sort of narcissism. That's the fight. That's the fight response. Um, my mom, my mom's was flight, but her flight, she wasn't, she, her flight was into books, into her head. She lived in her head. And when, when I had needs that need to be met as a child and she was in her checked out book mode, she did not want to be bothered. And she would, um, she would just give me, like she would give you this glare, this look of just contempt, utter contempt that said, don't make me put my book down. How dare you? And she gaslighted me all the time. Like 
and I think this all comes from not wanting to put her book down. But if it was like, if I'm hungry, no, you're not. That's just appetite. Mom, I don't feel good today. I think I'm sick. No, you're not. You're just looking for sympathy. Mom, I have a headache. No, you don't. You're just um, trying to, you're, you're just trying to get attention. So I learned to not trust my insides. And, and instead, I was always focusing on the outside about what kind of mood are the people around me. And another one was, I was fat shamed a lot. And so I'm always looking around for who's going to expose me as being fat. Like, I, I remember starting in seventh grade, when you change classes every period, I would always look around the room in each class on the first day of school to see if I was the fattest girl or not, because I had to know if I was safe. And, you know, that, that's just that's just not normal. And then the, there's another response, which is freeze. And I, I don't actually know a lot about that one, but I only wrote about mine because that's the one I know about. So what I'm saying is I did not write the trauma-informed AA book. I wrote a trauma-informed AA book for my type of response to trauma, which is placate and appease and be codependent and people pleasing and but it's all out of a need to feel safe so when I got to AA um they it was telling they were telling me that my ego is too big that I lack humility that I want to be, that I always want to be the center of attention, that I think the world revolves around me, that I think I'm God, that I want to tell everybody else what to do all the time because I know what's right. Well, man, that was just more gaslighting, complete gaslighting. Because, you know, it feels... It, it feels so weird talking when you can't see me. So let me know if I start cutting out, okay? <laughs> and I'll, then I'll turn my video off again. Uh, but so I had, and the God thing, I had a really hard time with that too. So um, interestingly, I, I, I didn't meet anyone that was secular in AA until I'd been sober for 28 years. It was all in, I was all in traditional meetings. I went, I felt like, and I was entering a parallel universe when they would read from the big book and everyone would nod and agree with everything that was said. I'm, I felt, I, you know, one of my issues is feeling like I don't fit in, feeling alienated, feeling isolated. I felt that 10 times over in AA and, and it was very depressing. It's like, wow, this is the last house on the block and I don't fit in here either. So I had a terrible experience with a lot of the AA program. Now the people in AA, that was something entirely different. And that's why I kept coming back. They were nice. They, they were friendly to me, except for there were a few who said, get God or die. I heard, I did hear that quite a bit. And, uh, and the most amazing thing was I had never witnessed unconditional love before. 
And I'd never witnessed anyone talking about their feelings before. We didn't do that. Nobody cared about my feelings. <laughs> Nobody wanted to hear about my feelings. If you're having a feeling, go to your room until you get over it. <laughs> so even having a feeling for me was connected with shame. And you know, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to have that. And and I as a consequence, I didn't learn how to identify my feelings or how to name my feelings. I could just, you know, how are you feeling? Either good or bad. That's all I know. So I um, I love that part of AA, and and that's why I kept coming back. And when I um, after twenty eight years, when I learned about secular AA, I felt like my the gag order had just been lifted, and I'm allowed to speak freely. And that was amazing. I did not have to just keep my mouth shut because nobody wanted to hear anything that disagreed with what the book said. And I was, it, it seems like in secular AA, a lot of us, yeah, we read the book, but then we discuss whether we think this part is true or for us or not true, you know, and it's so it's okay to treat the book that way. But in, in the regular AA that, that I went to that, that was not acceptable. So I started toying around with this idea that maybe Bill was only writing for a certain segment of people that were like the original AA members. I mean, if you look at the egomaniac or narcissist personality type, I mean, they were really low bottom drunks. And so one of the, one of the characteristics of that personality is I don't need any help. I got this. I got this. I got this. So that would keep them drinking for a, <laughs> for a long time. And the second thing is when they'd end up in the hospital and dry out right after that, it would be, okay, I got it now. I got this now. Right. And that was, and, and then they would relapse again. But, but, um, you know, later on, a lot more people started coming into AA with different personality types. And I, I just contend that the book was written for the people that were like Bill and all those people that say it works just the way it is. So don't change a thing. I just want to say it works for many people just the way it is. It also doesn't work for many people just the way it is, because not everyone is the same. And, you know, if you know, by making it more inclusive, that somehow detracts from your sobriety. I, I don't know what to make of that. I am an inch. So I, I have a little brief history of AA in my book um, where it's kind of interesting that the, the whole higher power thing is also about the narcissistic personality type. Um, Dr. Harry, I don't know how you say his name, whether it's Ty Bout or Tebow, but he, but he was a contemporary of Bill and, and the early AAers. He knew them. He, he treated some of them as a doctor. And he wrote an article for the American Medical Association Journal so I, I take this to be more object and a more objective description than than Bill's self description of his personality. And he said the typical alcoholic personality was narcissistic and egocentric, 
and his main character traits are defiance and grandiosity. That's not me. I'm compliant and self-deprecating. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, he believes himself to be omnipotent and cannot easily accept the idea of God. The feeling of superiority must be maintained at all costs. No one can tell him what to do because he knows better than everyone else. The presence of a God challenges the very nature of an alcoholic. Okay, I never saw myself as God or the center of the universe. I was at best on the periphery and no one would notice if I dropped off or, or if they noticed they wouldn't care. Um, I don't, I can look at, I can find powers greater than me just by looking around the room or out the window. I, I mean, I never had the slightest illusion that I was powerful. And so this trying, trying to make me see myself as this so that I could recover from this <laughs> was just a red herring. And not, I mean, not just a red herring, it, it was painful. When I got here, I did not have a good sense of who I am at all. Because like I told you, I was worried, I was always looking outside and, and trying to be what I thought you wanted me to be. And, you know, checking, paying, focusing on, you know, reading the room. And, and it was all just to keep myself safe. I didn't, most kids, you know, they realize other families do things different from theirs. Like when you go to spend the night and it, might, it starts, oh, do you, they brush their teeth before they put their pajamas on. We do it the other way. You know, a little, I mean, just little stuff like that. And you start to build up a bigger knowledge base than, than what just your family does. But I, I was so inhibited and, and in defense mode that I couldn't be open and exploring and, and, and look at these new circumstances and change, change my worldview because I was always in defense mode, which is not an open and exploring attitude. <laughs> so, I mean, what I did was I took my anecdotal experience of growing up in my childhood home and carried it with me out into the world thinking this is how the world is. Now, most of us are a bit science-minded and we know that you know data is far superior to anecdotal evidence. And uh, I didn't have data, I only had anecdotal evidence that I, but, and I tried to make it the whole truth. So, one time I had a, a client, um, I was a public defender, and I, um, he was telling me he had fought in a war in Iraq. And he said, you know, when you walk down the street, it's not the same as when I walked down the street. And I said, like, well, what do you mean? And he, he said, well, you'll be going like, there's a tree, there's a bird. And I'll be going like, what's behind that tree? Is that bird carrying anything? What's under that bush? Well, that was, that's, that was me in my childhood, you know, like just, just checking, just always in defensive mode and trying to feel safe. Um, and I could see that having when, what he, when he carried, 
like nobody would say those were character defects when he was in Iraq. They were survival skills. I hate, I don't call my, I don't call those character defects. I, I call them maybe character defaults because that's sort of where I go when I'm on autopilot and not using my new learning that I've gained in recovery. But I could see how those those survival skills, when he couldn't drop them, they they interfered with his ability to enjoy life not in Iraq anymore. And that's the exact same thing that happened to me. I, I took those attitudes and postures from my childhood and carried them out into the world and I couldn't enjoy the world. So I, when I heard all the steps when I first got here, they seemed so negative, they seemed so punitive. I mean, it, let's focus on your defects. Well, you know, if I get rid of them, there won't be anything left. I mean, I already know I'm defective. I don't need to come to A. Is that supposed to help me? I've known that since I was five. You know? uh, so the wrong focus. Um, I, so what I began to see and, and do in my own recovery is write a, a sort of a kinder, gentler program that, that addresses the issues that I actually have instead of the issues that Bill has. <laughs> so I, I start with step zero, which is I have to get some amount of self-esteem before I can even begin to face myself in the 12 steps. And so one of the, I did lots of affirmations. Like it's easy for me to think of all the negative stuff I say about it, say to myself all the time, you know, cause I mean, I could just I should be able to just rattle it off all the time. You're fat, dumb and ugly. You're lazy, selfish and irresponsible. Which were exactly the things that were said to me, but they weren't true. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, so then write down the opposite of that. Well, I'm, you know, like instead of I'm fat, I don't have to say I'm thin. I can say I'm, 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 a, I'm a healthy weight, you know, or I'm not, I don't have to say I'm beautiful, but I can say I'm reasonably attractive. Um, and, and I recorded my own voice saying those things because that was almost like a taboo. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to say something good about yourself. That's that's the like that's being haughty. That's being conceited. You're not even allowed to think anything good about yourself. <laughs> uh, so so I I fought that. I just fought that by playing these tapes over and over in my own voice, saying nice things about myself. You know, and it helped a lot. And I also worked on just trying to be more positive like I want to know what's out there that might be trying to eat us or, or something and am I cutting out okay yeah you did a bit we're all right we're we're wired to to focus on the negative and remember the negative because it, you know we well as we evolved we were living with uh, you know saber-toothed tigers and warring bands and it's good to know who they are and how to watch out for them um and, and to remember, oh, last time somebody ate that plant, they died. I'm not going to eat that plant, <laughs> you know, but I, I don't live in that world today. So I, I find kind of focused on just being more noticing things that are going right, noticing things that I do like instead of 
things I don't like. Um, and, and in these ways, I, I built my self-esteem up to begin looking at step one. And then when I did step one, it wasn't really, it, it turned out to be empowering, not disempowering. The one thing I admit I don't have power over is I can't control my drinking. I, I admit that I'm powerless over alcohol. That doesn't mean I'm, it, it turned out I had a lot of power that I had flat out just been giving away. And by that, I mean, like if you tell me something, I'll go along with your opinion rather than mine. Or I, I just tolerate abusive behavior because I'm used to it, you know, so it doesn't bother me. Well, abuse is abuse. <laughs> um, and, I, and I wrote a list of powers that I do have that I hadn't really realized. I have the power to define myself and not be defined by others. Because before I was whoever you told me I was. I have the power to claim my worth and not let others determine it for me. Like someone cannot like me and I can still feel good about myself. I have the power not to take responsibility or blame for things out of our, my control or, um, or for someone else's bad behavior. You know, in the book when it says we step on our fellow's toes and they retaliate, when I step on someone's toes, I apologize for being in their way. <laughs> so that is not, that's not Bill. You know, if I actually step on someone's toes, I am mortified. I'm, I'm a mouse in a china shop. <laughs> not a, you know, not a bull. <laughs> uh, I, I have the power to um, define my roles in life according to my own standards. I was always trying to be a good wife, be a good mother, be a good employee uh, based on some idea of what that means that wasn't my own. It was trying to live up to everyone else's standards in that way. That's the front I have to keep up for no one to look behind the curtain and see how weak and small I am like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> And I have the power to walk away from bad situations. That's not the whole list, but it's just the point that I, I do have, I have a lot of power that I wasn't using before. And in, in, in step four, I, you know, it tells us to keep our side of the street clean. Well, I figure that also includes cleaning up the crap that other people dumped on my side of the street and giving it back to them. And so, mom, when, when I was 15 years old and I came home, I, I had had a fight with my friends. I said, oh, my friends are stupid and I don't need any friends anyway. You said, well, if that's how you feel, then I hate you. Well, mom, that was about you. That any any no-brainer parent would say, what's wrong? What happened? I know I've raised kids. I mean, the first thing that would pop into my mind is, What's wrong? What happened? Not, I hate you. I mean, that was way out of left field and it wasn't about me. It was about you. Or, or like dad, when you told me I would make a good brood sow, 
that you don't say that to a 16 year old girl i don't know you know i don't know where you got your fathering skills from but you didn't have them and that wasn't about me that was about you in fact today you know this morning i was at a meeting and the topic was acceptance for the thousandth time over and so instead of saying what i usually say i said you know what i've really benefited from accepting that all those negative feelings that i have about myself were other people acting out their baggage on me and it wasn't true then and it isn't true now and i accept that i didn't know what a boundary was an interpersonal boundary you know where i end and someone else begins but now i can say those things were more about you than they were about me and that is very liberating to me um anyhow i think i don't like to talk for a really long time cuz i think people get tired of listening to the same voice <laughs> And plus, I always love to hear what what other people say, and so I'm just going to open it up. Um, I I will take questions, but also just feel free to share, you know, what whatever you would like to share. Thank you.